Hello, Heal listeners. Welcome to season seven. Before we dive into our regular format, the first few episodes of this season are a special three-part series I call The Dad Sessions. I highly recommend you start with part one and listen to them sequentially if you haven't already. Just two weeks after my father's death, Kendra and I sat down and began recording my experience of his diagnosis, the three and a half weeks being with him as he died, and his death, and the new very challenging world of grief I've experienced since. A few days before his passing, I was alone with my dad as he slept. In a moment, he came to and said very clearly, tell them what happened. It was not angry or challenging, more matter of fact, like it just needs to be so. So here we are telling you what happened. I'd also recorded some conversations with my dad the few weeks before he died, and we will be including some of those clips here. You'll get to hear his voice, my own, my sister's, and that of my mother. It is an honor to include him here in these episodes and have his voice heard and his perspective known as he faced the final days of his own life. After all, this is ultimately about him. He should have a say. Pretty amazing life. Now what? (laughs) We could just say I love you. From, oh. now, from now until the forever. Well, that's true. In addition to that, yeah. Yeah, I just meant what's, what, what's the next act? What's the next, you know? You're going to get to go get some answers the rest of us always are curious about. Yeah. Although I have a sinking suspicion there might be just as much mystery on the other side. It'll just be different. But I don't know. You'll tell me later. (laughs) Do you have thoughts about that? Curiosities? Curiosity. But, of course, we don't have any idea, any appreciation for what form our consciousness or awareness will take either, so we no nothing on which to base a, a picture. <coughs> so, yep. I don't think it doesn't seem to be comprehensible from this side of the veil. Right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to be. Keep looking for that guy that's stuck his head through and then pulled it back, and we want to interview him. <laughs> Welcome to Heal and part two of the Dad Sessions. In this episode, I share the intimate, profound, and deeply challenging process of being with my dad and taking care of him as he lived the final 24 days of his life. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I encourage you to go back and do so now. Otherwise, here we go. Today, I'm your guest, Dr. Sarah Marshall.
Should we transition into talking about phase two? Yeah, I think I can. That, 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 that part of the chat, that was way easier. <laughs> the clinical yeah. part. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's like the diagnosis process is like, I can get fired up about it and there's a little righteousness in there and, you know, and like, that's all, but this, this is, this is a whole different ball game. So what would you like to know? Cause I mean, I can go through the, like, and this happened and this happened and there's some really amazing things, but I think that I want to have a different kind of conversation about, yeah not just reporting on what happened in that same way. Right. Yeah. I mean, we can do an overview if you want to, but we also have a, you know, some questions we can go through as well. And that'd be great. I think that the big question, the big two questions are what surprised you the most Mm -hmm about it and what surprised you the most about yourself in this process you might have to remind me the second one but I can definitely speak to the first one so I'm looking I mean like I said I didn't talk about death I didn't think about it so it's not like I had really a preconceived notion (laughs) So this is like, everything about this was a new world. Everything about being with my dad, watching his body deteriorate, which some preconceived notion I would have thought would have been gross or hard to see or, you know, shocking as, I mean, I, we, we stopped weighing him. I can only guess he was 120 pounds when he died. Well, less. Yeah. So one of the things, there were several things that surprised me. One of the things that surprised me was really surprised me. How beautiful he looked. The closer to death he got. And there was like, we say things like how we return to this childlike state and that even as we age and in our, in our wisdom years and our elderly years, how there's this interesting patterning that happens. I mean, even just in the world of like going from the shift in role from him being, I mean, and my dad was an extraordinary provider protector and he provided financially and he provided an incredibly safe physical space and he provided physically, I mean, he helped me buy my first house and he helped me pay for college. And I mean, you know, all of those things to have that shift where he's like, so vulnerably, literally in my hands to be taken care of. And my moms and my sisters and the people that came to support us, but there's like this literal, like, like the way when you look at Ivy and she's just like full of life and like, there's this iridescence and this beauty and this amazingness. I'm not even kidding. That's what, like his body was dying. And then it was like, that was increasing somehow. Yeah. Wow. And part of what was also 
I would say unexpected is a better word than surprising for me was who my dad was being through this process and just the, the opportunity to be with somebody literally full of grace. I don't know that I had any concept of what the word grace was like as lived, like to experience grace. And I think of it now as like being touched by God or whatever that thing is. And I can honestly say, I have an experience of that now. It was a huge gift my dad gave us. Yeah. But it said something to the effect of, you are entering a sacred space, stop and take a breath. And then there was something about like coming in and meeting the space where it's at. She put it perfectly, however she put it. And, and at first we were like, oh, we could let people know who are visiting. Cause some of it was like, my dad's energy was shifting. And at a level physiologically, yeah. his energy was going, but no, he was spiritually evolving through the death process. He was expanding and going places and dealing with things. And he so willingly participated in that process. So when you have somebody who has flown across the country and gotten off an airplane and dealt with Uber and just walked in, you know, they're walking in and, and even people with the, the greatest normal experience of reverence, you just kind of walk into somebody's home the way you always do. And we wanted to interrupt that and create a space. And we thought about sharing it with the people visiting, but then we were like, it's everybody. It's the Amazon delivery guy of which we had like every day, there was something new we needed. Right. Or it's the medical equipment people who were coming in and, and like everybody read our sign and everybody like, and it started to shift how they would come in. And so, you know, I didn't know what I was capable of really until I had to do it. And I had to, as a weird word, got to created it, you know, early on, I can't remember exactly when we had this conversation, but, but even before dad's diagnosis, cause like he had this team of doctors, but he's been working with me on his nutrition and supplements and remedies for years. Although we unearthed some really funny things about how, like, whatever I prescribed him, he'd only take half of what I told him to take. Like, oh my always. <laughs> and like, like this whole thing came up where he, he like really had supplements in the occurring world of being supplemental, like not as important as even with a naturopathic daughter, That's even so with funny. a daughter who he like totally respected and he loved what I did and he knew all the difference I made for people, but he still sort of held it as like, well, but they're not like medicines that are required. We busted a lot of that stuff up, but there was, I mean, this is kind of like, like not trying to do this in chronological order, you know, but like the last week of his life, I'm dialing in narcotics to the hour. Wow. to manage his pain. And, you know, I had right. hospice nurses there in, in support with me and we, we had created, you know, I, you know, but like, I, I've never prescribed a narcotic in my whole life. Like I don't, I, you know, and so like there was this world of, and there was a place where my training as a physician and my sense of how somebody's doing and where they are, but then even being an intuitive and being able to tap in and then 
all of my training and landmark of communication and how my mom and my dad and my sister and I all communicated with each other and worked together. And so, you know, early on, I had made it really clear to my dad, even before the diagnosis that he didn't have to take any of my remedies. He didn't have to, like, he didn't need to like make me feel good about myself and go along with my treatment plans. I literally only wanted to create them for him if he wanted that. Yeah. And there was one point back in like March where he was resisting everything I had prescribed and he was like not taking it. And mom was kind of like lovingly kept telling on him and she's like, you know, your father's really not. And I was like, finally got on the phone with him. I was like, dad, do you remember when you finished your last set of remedies and you literally said to me, I need a new treatment plan. And you asked me to make you this. And he's like, oh yeah. I'm like, yeah. I only did this because you wanted me to. So like, it's your choice. I mean, this whole conversation about the context he held supplements in, and we talked about food as medicine. And we talked about like, actually, what are the things that cause cure? And it was really amazing. Like another surprise through this process was actually like getting to, my dad actually said to me, he's like, I've, I've always known and experienced you as a doctor from time to time, but he's like, sometimes you would show up to these phone calls with other doctors. And it was like a physician was in the house. Like he got to see parts of me that just don't show up most of the time when I'm being his daughter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. So you, I don't, I don't want to push you too much and I want to, the audience to realize that the questions I'm asking are questions you have given me. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Sort I wrote prompts. these for her a couple of weeks before dad died, actually, when I was just having a mental download. So because some of these questions are kind of intense. Yeah. And I ask them, you know, with reverence and, you know, all of the love that I have for you. And you talk about this, like, I can see you really looking at all of the beautiful aspects of it, you know, seeing the way that your dad became as he got closer to death. And that's very valuable perspective. But I want, I just want to know the truth about how it was for you and how it's been. Good. I'm glad you asked me that. I'm glad I asked you to ask me that. I said this to you before we started recording and I've said it to a couple other people, but I actually was really, really, really okay with my dad dying. Like it was amazing how okay I was with everything until he died. And I am really, really, really not okay with him being dead. It's the weirdest thing to say, but I would do the whole dying thing over and over and over again. Like it was beautiful and challenging and an amazing thing to be up to and worth my life. It was like, like all all the things we say about what creates satisfaction in life. Like that's what that experience and connected and getting to be with all of my, we had so many friends and family come, we had people flying in, you know, and like, it was like the best, the worst reason for the best family reunion ever. It was incredible. And I didn't sleep and I didn't fucking care. And like, I would get home. I did stay at my house until the last week. 
somewhat just because it was just easier to kind of manage a routine. And so I would get home between midnight and 1.30 in the morning. And then every morning the birds and the sun would come up at the same time and wake me up. And it was like, my first thought was really, are you going to lay in bed? Your dad's dying four miles down the road. And I just get up and go. And so like, I don't know, I got five hours of sleep, six hours of sleep most of the time. And then I just spend the whole day at my parents' house. I come here at eight. I go home at midnight. I come here at eight. I go home at midnight. <laughs> Sometimes I go home at one. Last night I went home at 10.30. Got a full night's sleep. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, the way you guys have worked this out is just amazing from my perspective. And, and I, I hope that it's serving the three of you and being able to be together, dance together, be with me, be have the support you need. Yeah. It has been. We were patting ourselves on the back a little bit and saying that we're really doing this right. <laughs> I mean, in the world of it. Also something that not all of the audience know, but my clients do is, so dad got diagnosed on a Wednesday, 27th of April, and that whole weekend, I was massively grappling with work. This thing that in America in particular, we're addicted to, and we think we can't live without. And I, as much as I consider myself an evolved, transformed human, the idea of like, what am I going to do? Just like stop working. You can't do that for how long? I mean, what, like, I hope he lives for six months, but what if he lives for six months? Like, I can't take six, like there was this whole, like, and do I take time off now? Or do I take time off when he's really dying? Cause is he really, I mean, like, how the fuck do you know? Like there was just this whole, and I had every intention to keep working as best I could and try and figure it out. And, you know, my mom So for varying reasons, I was gone from March 18th to April 25th and had been in Utah. And then I went to Pittsburgh with my sister. And so my mom had been taking care of my dad on her own. And in those last couple of weeks before the diagnosis, mostly April, his care was starting to rapidly go up. Finally, we got to a place where they prescribed some pain medication for his pain. And and at this point he hadn't slept, literally hadn't slept a night's sleep in four months. He was waking up about every hour and a half. And what he did realize with the bone pain was movement actually did make a difference if he could get up and move. And so he would get up and pace until his pain was less Mm -hmm. that he could lay down and sleep. Also laying flat was horribly painful and it took us a while. So like right before I got home, mom had gotten a hospital bed that was adjustable and we'd gotten him on. Oh my gosh, this is Dilaudid. I literally wrote the word Dilaudid like nine times a day for three weeks and I almost (laughs) forgot it. And so that was prescribed every four hours. So the other thing was, is like there was midnight meds, 4am meds, 8am, you know, and noon and mom was doing all of that. So when we got back, there was so much to do to help support her. There was just backlogs of laundry and getting the house put back together and helping, you know, we already had started, I had set up a meal request from their spiritual community. And for a couple of weeks already, we'd had people delivering food. So mom didn't have to cook or grocery shop or anything. And, 
And that's just in that other world. And I don't know that I, I mean, maybe I don't know what's out there and what's needed many times through the process. We were like, this sounds really ridiculous, but there actually should be one of those dying for dummies books. Yeah. Like, you know, I know that there's a, and I know I've been swearing in this episode already. It's funny that I was about to apologize for this one, but there's this really awesome website. I have no affiliation with them called unfuck your life. And it's awesome. And it's like checklists. It's literally unfuck your move, unfuck your house, unfuck your, like, it's like, and it's these checklists done for you of somebody who's already thought through when you need to get your gutters cleaned and how to take care of these things and what things should be seasonal and what things should be annual and what things. And then like in the moving, and I actually found them originally because of when I moved, I'm not totally kidding. We need an unfuck the death process because like, I actually did end up writing checklists and I ended up creating structures for us. We had a shift schedule and we signed ourselves up for shifts for his medications because there were points I was so sleep deprived and so brain dead. And I mean, we laughed mostly about all of this, but we had dad who literally is dying of pancreatic cancer, who until the last week of his life was fully conversant, talking to us, not getting out of bed much. You know, we have my mom who already has a certain amount of swirl around her just in the way she lives. My sister who's severely ADHD and totally self-admits it. And me, who's usually the structure queen, all totally cracked out on a stress process. So like, if it wasn't freaking written down, forget about it. Like we wouldn't have been able to track stuff. And so, you know, that process of him dying, going back to your question of like the truth of how it was like, like, you know, and then there would be times mornings still are the hardest. They were all through the whole process where I'd be at home and I would quick take a shower, change my clothes, make coffee for both my sister and I, because I have a really stellar espresso maker. And she's like, could you please bring me the good coffee? So I'd make coffee, which takes like 10 minutes when you do it that way. And mostly at that point, I was bringing Henry with me and Henry and I would go to my parents' house. And dad had this routine you know, he had meds at 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. And he still was having a hard time sleeping. Sometimes he could sleep through the night, but lots of times he'd be awake starting at sometimes even five or six in the morning when the birds would come up. There's another thing that I want you guys to know about my dad in this process that I just, there's no way I couldn't have guessed, but even still, like he declared he wanted to enjoy He didn't want to miss anything. He didn't want to listen to music. He didn't want people to read books to him. He didn't want to listen to podcasts. He literally savored, like in the essence of that word, every minute and every drop of life until he died. Like once he knew he was dying, like that's what he did. So he just like, I'd come into his room at 730 in the morning with a cup of tea and he'd be sitting in his rocking chair just being, being still alive. Yeah, I just keep being beautifully surprised that when I crack my eyelids in the, in the real morning and I find out that it's going to be another beautiful day with you guys, you know, it's just another precious gift.
Yep. Hmm. And we would have these amazing times in the mornings. And sometimes there would be really neat conversations. Like I asked him what he was most proud of about his life. And often though, there'd be times when we just couldn't avoid that I was spending the last fill in the blank. And throughout those four weeks, as he was declining fast, there were several moments where it was like, I just didn't know how quick a body would go. Like, will he die this weekend? Will it take two more weeks? Like there was such this, like, and there closer and closer towards the end became like, you never knew when it was literally the last conversation you just had with him when he wouldn't be able to converse anymore. None of us knew. And one of the agreements we had made, oh, so I never finished this thought from before. Pardon, my brain's still a little fuzzy from all of this, but I had said around his treatment plans and even when he first got diagnosed, my promise to him was to always fulfill on what he wanted. He would declare what he wanted to me, whatever that was. And if he's like, I don't want to take another blasted capsule of vitamin C for the rest of whatever life I have, I would have stopped giving him vitamin C. He didn't say that actually. You know, we actually had a really profound conversation about the opportunity that the chemotherapy might make for him and what the cost benefit ratio was on it. And you'd think this would have been more obvious, but there was this like epiphany I had two days after his diagnosis that I actually am a naturopathic physician and I'm trained in alternative ways of taking care of somebody through this process. So we had a whole conversation about using natural therapies to support what he wanted, which was to be able to be connected and be with the people in his life. Like he wanted, you know, he did want a sense of like the minimal amount of pain and and most comfort, but not at the expense of being able to be connected with people. Yeah. And so then that's what we did. We created everything around that. And so fulfilling on my dad's wishes, whatever he said, and as they moved was what we did, whatever he said, this is now how I want it. That's what we would create. I'm amazed at this stage of the game and whatever that is, I have no idea, Yeah. Um, that I'm this physically comfortable. Oh man, and, so grateful. And um, I feel engaged, present. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what my perception, but... Oh, you are. Hmm. Oh, you're, you're either totally. asleep or fully present. Yeah. That's been my experience. We declared total authenticity. Nobody has to be strong for anybody else. Nobody has to hide what they're feeling or dealing with. Like one person grieving gave permission for someone else. You know, it just, and we, and we st- stood by that and we invited people into that as they came to be at the house and visit. And so there were times I just couldn't bear it. And I would sit mostly on the floor with like, my dad was in a hospital bed and I would put my arms up on the edge of his bed and just weep into my hands. Yeah. And sometimes (laughs) the dying man would wrap his arms around me or stroke my hair or stroke my back, like consoling me being with it. 
So that's some of the truth of how it was. <laughs> and I mean, we're kind of, we've kind of touched on this, but one of the other questions you had for me was what has been the hardest part? Yeah, I mean, process. it's definitely similar to that, but like the, there just wasn't anything that felt too hard in the process of him dying. Like not anything. I could look and see of, I mean, the day he died was pretty intense. Okay. We should put a warning to the listeners on this one. I think it's important to be specific and not just talk about something because it's not as powerful. It's also not as true. So it was Sunday, May 22nd. And the a week ago, Friday, so eight or nine days earlier, we'd had some family visiting and my dad had just gotten to a point where he couldn't visit with people anymore. Tracking conversations and And some of it was his difficulty in concentrating. And some of it was also like the disconnect of where people were and where he was and what, what he was doing. I mean, he was doing dying that I didn't know that was a thing until watching him doing dying. And he just wanted to be with my sister, my mom and I, and that was one of the three days that Friday was one of the three days where he was kind of despondent and quiet and down. And The next morning I came in, I often did the morning stuff that needed to be done. And I came in the next morning and he already had been kind of grappling with like, like a couple of days earlier, he'd asked me, what's the point of eating? Which is an interesting question for a dying man. question. And we talked about it. He'd started to have some dizzy spells and some feeling uneasy. And he had been eating less and less. And I never asked him, but I got the sense that some of eating less and less was because he really didn't want it. But some of it was like, what's the point? What am I trying to do with food? Live longer? Like he, he, there was, and it wasn't morbid. It was real. It just was his truth at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, not eating will eventually have an impact on the end of your life, which you might choose. And to eat could be simply because it tastes good and you want to have that experience. And it also could make a difference with their experience of concentration or dizzy spells. Like sometimes when you feel like you're having a hard time focusing, being with people that really could be blood sugar (laughs) and even, even dying, you have to have a certain amount of blood sugar to keep your brain functioning. Cause it, I think in the middle of that week, he'd sort of really slow down and sometimes was saying no to food. And so then after that, he kind of got this slight renewed, like, well, okay, then I want breakfast. (laughs) And and that Friday though, we didn't know it at the time because you don't know when it's the last thing, but he hadn't eaten much on Thursday and he didn't have breakfast on Friday morning. And then Friday afternoon, seemingly out of nowhere. I wasn't there. My sister's in the room. He goes, do we have chocolate ice cream? (laughs) And so he had a bowl of chocolate ice cream for lunch. 
-hmm. And he had, I got to make it homemade macaroni and cheese for dinner. And then that was the last thing he ever ate. So Saturday morning he woke up and I was in there. Mom wasn't in there yet. And my sister was running errands. And I said, I didn't ask him how he was very often. It's kind of a ridiculous question Yeah. at this point, but I just had a sense of he was in that same kind of contemplative space. And I said, dad, how are you? And he looked at me and he said, I'm ready to give up. And that's exactly what he said. He used those words. And I knew he'd made the shift from, I know I'm going to die to literally actively dying. And a couple, I don't know, half an hour later or so, my mom was in there. And the three of us started to have a conversation about it. And he said, I'm, I'm ready to be done. And my sister, like I said, wasn't home. And, and this is my dad. God, he goes, I really want this to be a family decision. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? Okay. Yes. I mean, we were in the game of fulfilling his wishes, whatever yep. he wanted, you know? So we called my sister and she was home in like 15 minutes. And the four of us sat around and we talked about it like extensively. And how did that go? One thing he asked, which I have heard from other people who spend time around the dying is pretty common is he wanted to know how we could speed things along. (laughs) Given that I'm ready to die, could we like, you know, like, what can we do here? And, you know, some of it was, was totally valid. Like and this again, very likely will be a future podcast episode is a whole conversation about assisted suicide for people who are dying and the legality of it and the not and all of the parts and pieces, which it is not legal in the state of New York. So it was not even a conversation to be had, but when you're the person laying in the bed dying, don't really much care about what's legal and what's not legal. There's conversations of what's possible. Right. And there had been a box of medications hospice had given us that was just to be used as needed in case of, and we, it has a big sign on it. Don't open without calling hospice. And I didn't know, I don't even think they might've told us what was in the box. We didn't have the list anywhere. My dad started asking about that box a couple of days earlier. It took us a little while to figure out what he was asking was, (laughs) is that the box that I get to end my life with? (laughs) Turns out, no, that is not what's in there. I mean, there is some liquid morphine in there, but not nearly sufficient. It doesn't work that way. I think they actually very carefully make sure that the contents of that box right. will not actually allow for that. But, you Even know, there the was parameters. Yeah, there was Haldol for anxiety and there was an anti-nausea and there was some additional liquid morphine because many people get to a point where they can't swallow pills anymore. And that happened with dad and a couple other things. But, but there was a, a very real conversation from him's request of like, could anything be done? I've never done this before. So I actually had, I called the hospice nurse and basically flat out asked her. And there is that place of like, yeah, there's what's legal and then there's what's possible. And I don't even know. And, and very clearly the state of New York hospice and the physicians involved are here to support nature, taking its course, not enhance or speed up that process. 
but then we looked at it from another angle like that, you know, it's interesting, right? Like the whole thing is we're in a medicalized society that looks at everything through that one lens, but then there's other conversations to be had about spiritual readiness and what could we do? I don't know that speed up the process is the right phrase, but not get in the way, open the doors, liberate the space. And I called also a naturopathic friend of mine, naturopathic, she's a naturopathic physician who's also an oncologist as her specialty and asked her the same thing. I said, what do you see at this stage? And she had some great recommendations of homeopathic remedies, arsenicum being one of them that's known for fear of death. And I always thought of it like in the living when they're concerned for and have deep states of anxiety, but there's this place of like, the more you feel free to die, the more space there might be to take that step, you know? And so, and then ironically, but not at all, she listed two homeopathic remedies and I literally had both of them in potencies that are not normally just like laying around the house. It was one of those miracles that happened in this process. So that those eight days, we literally created a sacred space and held vigil with my dad. Like that conversation on Saturday, one of the things he said to us was he asked that we stay with him. He didn't want to be alone at all, which isn't always the case. Some people, when they, they actually really need that spaciousness and they want some of their own, you know, but my dad, it wasn't the case. And he said, would you help me be less afraid with what I have to face? Of course we all were absolutely there. And, you know, at this point he could have pretty, he was so conscious. He was so present. He was so very clearly aware of what he was saying. And then he'd get pretty exhausted after conversations. And then, so I think we, we were able to give him permission to die in that conversation. And it was like a big weight lifted and he slept for like a really long time, really deeply, which was also a little like, was that it? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, yeah, like, like you right. just like, was, is he now not coming back? Even if his body's here, he didn't come back a lot, but he definitely came back and that getting to support him in that way, we, quickly started to shift the room around from being a room full of medical life to a room full of spiritual life. We turned many of the dressers and tables into altar spaces. And I had packed essentially a go bag for this moment, not knowing when it was going to come and had downstairs just left a couple of weeks earlier. I'd left a bag of clothes and all my ceremony tools. I had sage and I had like a sertraline crystal ball and I had like Ganesh who is the like remover of obstacles like I had my whole little kit and almost as soon as we completed that conversation and dad went to sleep I just got the strong sense like it's time and I went downstairs and I got everything and I brought it up and I started cleaning and I cleaned his whole room I dusted every surface I just we tended to that room like a sanctuary, like a ceremonial space, the entire rest of his life. And we lit a candle and placed it on the dresser across from him. And I don't remember when this was, it might've been Sunday or Monday. I think it was a couple days. 
but he kind of came to at one point and he was like squinting and looking at it. And he, he said something, my mom was the one that had this conversation with him. He said something to her and she was, she was like, what the candle? And he's like, is that the light or is that a light? <laughs> <laughs> and literally my mom's like, no, 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 that's a candle in the room. We thought it might be. And we realized like, we were kind of thinking like that would help the energy, like transmit and go up or wherever he wants to go. No, it was freaking confusing him. So we're like, maybe we'll put the candle over here. So it's not like right in front of him, you know? And like, yeah. And it's so interesting. Cause like, that's, I know the, the question you asked me that spawning all this was what was the hardest part, but like, it, it, it was just intense, you know, there was just an intensity to it. And around people who are dying, there can be conversations about the pain medications and delusions and hallucinations. Now, I haven't had the privilege yet to spend a lot of time with hospice volunteers and hospice nurses, nurses, but I get the strong sense that most of them will say, yeah, that's bullshit. It's not hallucinations. The veil gets thin. I witnessed my dad spend time between worlds, go out there and come back. And he'd talk about it. He'd bring conversations back with him. There was a something you want to talk about. Yes. They're so good. I mean, they were brief in our world, but the profound, there was one where he goes, my mom and my sister were there. And he, no, just my mom and I. So my sister wasn't in the room and he'd been, and this is another one of those, like we say he'd been sleeping. I'm certain he slept sometimes. I'm also certain he was doing a lot of other things. He was journeying. He was checking out being outside of his body. He was doing work, completing things, healing. I mean, he was, I was so struck the, like we talked about the parallel of birth and death. Right. And, and I was so struck by the laboring it takes to die. That's something that gets talked about. I'd never heard anybody talk about it, but I witnessed it. It was like in front of my face. And like, when we give birth, most people labor 24, 36 hours, sometimes less this was literally like watching my dad labor for eight days. Like there was a, and then that same space. And actually one of my dear friends, who's a midwife, when I, I wrote something about this in my post on Facebook, when I shared about my dad's death, about that, about the the birth and the death. And she said from one midwife to another, and I burst into tears when I saw that, because it, it is, it's this yeah. midwifery. And they, yeah. there are people who call themselves death doulas. And that's like, it's, I was waiting for a chance to talk about that because that's something, again, my friend who experienced the death of her son, that she is in the process of becoming a death doula because Mm. she talked about how it's something that's so lacking and people know, even if you don't know what it's like to give birth, you've never done it before. You know what you need to know, or you at least have some grasp of what you need to know. There's classes. They're like, hey, you're going to have a baby. Go to this class. Hey, you're going to have a baby. Hire a doula so you don't have to do it alone so someone can support you. But there's none of that narrative around death. 
very and, little, like hospice, yeah. which it becomes this like holy grail of death, which is like, well, and then at some point you'll hire hospice and poor hospice. They're like, we have to be everything for everyone because there isn't enough right. cultural support. Right. Yeah. And hospice to me feels like going to the hospital to have the baby. Like that's, you know, it's happening. It's go time. Right. But there's not all the prep work, like, okay, well, make sure you have hired a doula so that when you get to the hospital, you have that support, you know, like that conversation around death is missing is the, you know, like you said, not everyone gets a chance to prep for death. There are people who die suddenly, but there's a lot of people that it is. And that just goes back. So while my dad was dying and I did have all this time in the room, it's like, what do you do? Watch Netflix? I don't think so. (laughs) Like, you know, and I'm a big fan of meditation and ceremonial spaces, but even for me to just sit and hold meditation, so that didn't even feel appropriate. Right. So one of the things I did was I read the beginning of the Tibetan book of living and dying. And it was actually recommended to me by one of my coaches to investigate that book. And it is a modern expansion of the Tibetan book of the dead, and then also goes deeper into some other aspects. And I didn't make it very far through it in the process. I read about the first 50 pages, but one of the big topics of the first 50 pages is our modern culture is terrified of death, doesn't want to be with death, won't talk about it, won't address it. It is literally like we just ignore it, like it's never going to happen. So of course we don't have a death doula industry, like we have a birth doula industry. And we, I mean, I even at one point remarked, like, if you're having a baby, there are like 9,000 books. If anything, people are shoving their opinions down your throat about how you're supposed to do everything and what you need and all of that. And like, I am actually aware there's more resources on death and dying than I'm, I'm present to, because I was ignoring it. I was not paying attention to it. It is there somewhat, but I don't think to the extent and certainly not like what we're kind of touching on. And so, well, and the resources are there, like there are death doulas, there are death midwives, but it's more of the cultural conversation that lets people know those resources are there and how to access them in a moment of time. Cause like, that's that thing. Like my, all of the things I talked about my capacity and yet even still the number of times, like I'm completely overwhelmed by my emotions and I'm brain dead to think about how to research what to do in these moments. Like there was this automatic, okay, we then talk to hospice and they have all the answers. And I am internally grateful for hospice. And there were some things that went great. And there were some things I would have loved to have gone differently. And again, that goes back to like every single hospice nurse and practitioner we encountered was an extraordinary human being. There are things missing in the system about it. There are things missing in the conversations about it. It's not about anything of the individual humans, but there were some things. What I haven't said that was actually probably because this is one of the ones I'm having a harder time being with is, uh, so one of dad's big, big commitments, determinations was to be able to take himself to the bathroom. He was un interested in having to lay in his bed and go to the bathroom in any way, shape or form. And it is interesting because not that that's an easy conversation for anybody, but when you're actually physically incontinent, when your body just won't have any control, there's a certain, like, you just have to surrender to it and deal with it. 
but he was continent. He would have had to choose to just go to the bathroom in his own bed. Like I, I actually viscerally feel how challenging that would be in my own body. Yeah. So he was very determined and he was very weak. I mean, there was a point where like, God, his determination, he would still make himself get out of bed and go sit in the rocking chair for a little bit of movement. I mean, he was pretty unsteady and we were actually concerned about him falling because that would have automatically, he would have been in the hospital and then he wouldn't get to die at home. Because another thing about cancer that like I knew conceptually, but until I was facing someone dying of cancer, he has no immune system. He can't heal anything. A cut on his lip, a peeled piece of skin. He had a little hematoma, a little like, and it wasn't even a bruise because it was actually a like bleeding under the skin on his toe. Never healed. It looked exactly the same for four weeks because like, and, and until I physically saw that I didn't get it. And, you know, we talked about his last meal on that Friday. He also started to slow down and drinking water somewhat intentionally and somewhat around the, the just way his body was operating. And then at some point he had no control over it from an intentional standpoint. He just had a hard time swallowing and he's on pretty decent amount of pain medications. So that all dries you out as well. So dry mouth times 10,000 with the medications. And so that is part of that. Like what was hard, but then not hard was like, I mean, his lips were sticking to his teeth. His mouth was becoming like rubber. There was a smell to his breath. Like we couldn't really do dental care and he is dying. Now I realize we have sterilized death so much. Death used to be far more full of smells and sounds and decay hundred years ago. And then some, and in other countries, it very much is, but even still like, I mean, to be totally straight, his mouth was decaying. And I can't say it smelled bad. It, it was like this part of you that takes over that, that makes all of this right and good. And he finally got to a point where getting out of bed was not an option. And so we had the nurses come in and put a catheter in. And one of the things I really wish they had talked to us about and didn't is the, what if he had a urinary tract infection from the catheter? Cause he did get one and it was pretty awful. And at this point he wasn't able to be completely responsive about exactly what he was dealing with. And he would wake up in the middle of the night and he'd be so restless. He'd literally be trying to get out of bed. And he just kept telling us, I have to go to the bathroom. And we're over here thinking he's just in an automatic state saying, no, no, you have a catheter. You don't have to go. You actually, it'll take care of it yourself. No, I got to go to the bathroom. No, I really have to pee. And he was telling us we had no fucking clue for days. And again, he couldn't heal anything. And I know the women on these podcast know how bad it hurts when you urinate so painful multiply that out man and he had the catheter placed on sunday and i don't think we took it out until friday thursday we didn't know there was granular sediment 
in his bag. It was so darkly colored because he's dehydrated. So I don't know how much of that is the body breakdown. Is that blood? Like, I mean, and that's just the, and I get, this is, this is where it's so hard. Yes, he's dying. And it's totally possible he could have had kidney failure as part of the death process. And in hospice, we're not doing anything to stand in the way of him dying. I get that. But there's this place of like, somebody could have fucking told us we could have done it differently. And one of the hard things was, I mean, this is a man in pancreatic cancer is painful in and of itself. Bone cancer is painful in itself. He's on all of the pain meds and the thing that would break him out of the, the medications, the thing that would cause the breakthrough pain was when he would urinate and his whole body would start to cringe and contort. And a man who had no water left in his system, he hadn't drank water in days. It was completely dehydrated, would have tears running down the side of his face. That's horrifying. That was pretty tough. That was also the place where my capacity kicked in of trusting my intuition, trusting my gut, getting in communication with hospice, adjusting his medications. Like, and there were some other things that was nobody's fault that were, there was adjustments made to his medications last week. And what they kept saying is like, this should make it easier for you. And this is in that haze of not being able to get into all the like, wait, what are you, why? We don't need it easier on us. We just want to do what works for him. But, you know, he declared he was done on Saturday. (laughs) He woke up Sunday morning, not dead. And he was really annoyed. (laughs) Like there was a part of him that like, was like, you just flip it like a switch. Right. You know? And so Sunday, the day after he declared he was done, he gathers the family together again for a talk. And he literally verbatim says, it occurs to me, this process may take an inordinate amount of time. And I'd asked you all to stay with me, but you're going to have things to do. <laughs> like, like he was literally having a conversation, like his dying process might be an inconvenience to our lives. Like, Oh my God, it was amazing. Like that was an aspect of my dad. I never really saw the depth of the actual insecurity that was there about being a burden on other people. My dad was a very capable man. And I actually can see his drive to be so capable was covering up this. Cause I never want to be a burden on anyone. And he might've put it in different words than that, but that's what it looked like from the outside. And so we had to reconfirm to him that it was not an inconvenience. And if this took eight days or eight weeks, we weren't going anywhere. And he literally replied to that and said, well, I can't imagine eight weeks without chocolate cake. (laughs) But then that night we put the catheter in and I don't know how fast, but, but by Monday, Tuesday, he was already starting to have symptoms. And then on Monday, they had, we were dealing with managing pain medications and things running out and needing refills. And the way it works in hospice is you, you need a prescribing doctor and they have doctors who work in the hospice department, but then typically they'll ask the primary care physician of the person who's dying to be the prescribing doctor, which makes sense for a lot of reasons. They have known this person and all of that, but it's a little tricky because that person's actually removed from the hospice process. So all my dad's primary care physician has is whatever notes that he's received from the medical side. 
And I don't know any, I have no clue how that communication went, what they told him, what he knew, what he didn't know, or any of that. But he replaced some of the Dilaudid with a fentanyl patch. And the idea was that if, you know, a patch, you don't have to swallow pills, which dad already was having a hard time with. We started crushing them into water and using small syringes to put them inside of his cheek. But even still like fentanyl. And one of the things I learned is not all pain medications are equal. And some different pain meds will work differently on different kinds of pain. And you don't really know until you have the patient in front of you, which ones work the way they do. So we switched over to the fentanyl patch thinking it would replace the Dilaudid and it didn't. And so we would play this catch up where his symptoms would get worse. And that also covered up the urinary tract infection because then his pain would change. And it was just this whole like, and I mean, it was down to like by the hour changing things. And we had a yellow legal pad. We'd been writing every time we gave him a drug, every time we gave him medication, you know, the hospice nurses were like, oh my gosh, seriously, would you train people? She's like, one of the nurses said she had just come from somebody's house, which I can only imagine people are dealing with kids and jobs and lot. I mean, like we had the most extraordinary set of circumstances and resources to be able to do it this way. I'm don't take that for granted. And she said she'd come from a house where she asked what the last dosage was. And somebody's like, I don't know, it's on a paper towel around here somewhere. <laughs> so like varying different levels, but we, we had it. And the advantage of tracking it that way, because my brain was not working super hot at this point. I mean, we're in week four of labor and delivery and also the emotions of all of what's happening is we're not bringing a life into the world. I'm going to lose my dad at the end of this. He's going to die whenever that happens. And I could use the tracking system to actually look and start to see some of the issues. Cause it was like in black and white out in front of me. And so we kept making adjustments and, but that was, I mean, that was at the level of what surprised me that I had no idea I had that kind of capacity. And it also was at the level, and there were conversations between my mom and my sister and I, where they were so acknowledging, they didn't defer to me. We made every decision together and we'd call the hospice nurse. We'd tell them what's going on. We'd come up with a plan. We'd talk about it, but there was a, a real acknowledgement of each of our strengths. And we each got to play into the parts that was what we knew well. And I did pretty much manage all of his medications. Like I made the decisions with the hospice nurses. We worked on it together. We created the game plan and played it out. And, and that's the, I mean, hospice creates the opportunity to die at home. And here's another parallel that I didn't know about. There's a death at home movement, just like there's a birth at home movement. Yeah. Which I'm very interested in learning more about that. Yeah. But then you have a whole bunch of people with no medical training who've never done this before trying to make this thing happen. And you're like, so, I mean, it's just, it was wild. But that, yeah, a million words ago, I was saying something about the morning that he died. After the first couple of days after he declared he was done, we realized we were operating like this was a sprint and it might be a marathon. Like you really don't know. And while the body in theory can't go more than three days without water, my dad went eight. <laughs> so we didn't know. Wow. And I was like, I don't know. Will he go 18? Like, I don't know. And his heart was just, I mean, it was just, I mean, it was thready, 
110 beats per minute, 110 beats per minute, 110 beats per minute, 110 beats. His oxygen rate in his body was still like 95, 96% oxygen saturation. We weren't taking a lot of vitals, but every once in a while we would tune in on his vitals as kind of like a clue. Like, is his body starting to decompensate? And I think it was Friday night, two days before he died. I had a lot of emotional stuff going on and I stayed up all night. I didn't sleep at all. I was still awake the next morning when everyone got up. And then Saturday I had to, like I had to sleep and we would do this rotation. Somebody would take the midnight meds and someone would take the 4am meds so that one person could in theory, get a whole night's sleep. Now we were all sleeping in the room with my dad. We, it literally was set up like a ceremony. There was comfy beds and leaning places. And we ordered this special ottoman slash chair slash twin bed. You can get them on Amazon. It was delivered in two days. It was amazing. And my, we had that set up next to my dad's bed. Cause that was one of the other things was like, my mom didn't know when the last night was, she was going to be able to sleep in the same bed as her husband. And that happened weeks before. And so we never really fully recreated the ability for them to like cuddle again, but we got this piece of furniture as an opportunity to be as close to like laying next to each other. And whoever was sort of on point to keep tabs on him that night, especially when he kept trying to escape his bed for a while there, we didn't know why. And it would be like two in the morning and he's like heading to the bathroom and we're like, Oh no, you're not. So it was good. That person was there. And so then the other person, you know, who's not doing meds that night could kind of do the best job they could to try and sleep. And so that was me Saturday night, the night before he died. And I got a full night's sleep. I woke up the next morning in a pretty incredibly, like remarkably pleasant mood, all things considered. And just decided like I hadn't been walking Henry at all. He needed it. And I just decided to take Henry for a walk. And my dad loved Henry. They had a really awesome relationship and he would take him for a walk across the street from their house is this really neat park, literally called the big field. And the big field has got an eight foot swath mowed out of it in a loop. And my dad and Henry would go there all the time. And actually the last walk I ever went on with my dad in March was in the big field. And I have, for whatever reason, I took pictures. I never do that. And I have pictures of him from that walk. We should put those in the show notes. We will. Yeah. It was all snowy. And uh, I took Henry for a walk. And my mom showered. Like it was one of those things you hear about it from people where like my grandfather died of an aneurysm out of nowhere. Nobody knew, literally had no clue he was going to die. He'd had a messy desk his entire life. And three days before he died of an aneurysm, he cleaned his whole desk and organized everything. And it's that thing. So we just sort of like, I I don't know, there was just a like mom showered and the kitchen was clean and I took the dog for a walk. And, and then I came home at like nine and I was putting stuff away in the kitchen and my sister popped her head out and like waved me into the room. And I came in and mom just looked at me and said, today's dad's traveling day. And he died at 1030 an hour and a half later. And mom really was the one had to like tell him. 
And it was definitely giving him permission, but it was even more than that. There was this declaration of Bob, it's time you got to go. And we're all here. And she coached him like a birthing coach. She coached him through it. Which I can't even get over what that must have been like for my mother to do that with her own spouse. And who she is. That she even has that capacity and wisdom. And I mean, I swear my mother is a medicine woman for sure. And she's been an unofficial, you know, not by training, but by being birth doula supporting several children, I think six coming into the world and the death doula. I think she said five times, four times, and then like nearly in the room right before or after a couple other times. So like that she even had that to draw on with her own spouse. And he started actually like laboring, like his breathing was speeding up and more intense. And there was like a a little bit of a struggle to it. I don't know what was it. And, and, you know, my doctor brain's like, Oh, is he physiologically decompensating? Like what? And then this other place is like, it was taking effort, like work. Yeah. And one of those decision points is I, you know, the, the hospice nurse had told us we could use the liquid morphine as needed to help with his pain when needed. we hadn't needed it very often. And I looked at my mom and my sister and I said, I can see how much he's struggling against the pain. And there was a thought about when we're in pain, it anchors us back here. It doesn't let us let go of our consciousness. And it was one dose. And my mom and my sister said, yeah. And so I gave him one dose. And after it started to set in, in the next like 20 minutes, like all, everything started to relax and his breathing went the other way and started to slow down. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't quite stopped breathing yet. And I just had this strong urge to not be sitting right next to him. And it was interesting. We all kind of started to fall into our own deep internal process. My mom held his hand and was still talking to him. And I went and sat down and I laid out a special blanket that has literally been at every retreat and every ceremony I've ever participated in. And I laid it down on the floor and I was given a gift from a friend in my tribe of these types of incense. And it has sweet grass and cedar and frankincense and tobacco and sage in it. And I set them out in the four directions. And then there's like a small little ember cauldron that you use. And I often use it to set spaces and clear energy or call in the four directions. And I just was compelled that this is what was needed. And I started in the South, which is the underworld and all things below the earth and called in those energies to support this process. And then I went to the West, which is the physical body. And he died between the West and the North. And the North is the winged ones Mm. and the air and the spirits. Mm. And 
it takes a while because each step the incense goes and I let it burn until it's completely gone. I think the whole process took about an hour. And after he'd actually stopped breathing, my, at some point, my mom actually came over and my sister had been sitting on the other side of my dad in meditation. And she came over and sat on the other side of me. And we realized that I was actually physically in the North and he was in the South. And my sister and my mom were each on each side, East and West. And I finished the ritual with us like that in the first 25, 40 minutes after he died. Wow. How powerful. And we just hung out for several hours, you know, and just was being in the space and the energy. And there was tears, but it didn't actually get grief stricken hard until we called hospice and they sent out the people from the cremation services to actually take his body. That was the hardest part. That was pretty rough. There was some as illogical as it is part of me. That's like, he's still here until that happened. I think, you know, that's a good segue to talk about the final phase of this. The phase that's so new to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what have you learned about death? Fuck, nobody gets out alive. (laughs) Join us next week for the final part to this special series, The Dad Sessions, where I will share about the past five months since my father died and what I've discovered about grief in the process. Thank you to Kendra, my dad, Bob Rubenthal, my mother, Catherine Fisk, and my sister, Elizabeth Williams, for walking this incredible path of life together as family, soulmates, and friends. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. We included some special photographs for you guys. Thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.